Bank of Clark County is making it easy to give to local charities. We're featuring a different one at each of our Bank of Clark County locations. To find out how you can support their good work, visit our website at www.bankofclark.bank or follow us on our social media channels and the hashtag GiveWithBOCC. Bank of Clark County. Member FDIC. This is Dennis Sanders, uh, your host for the podcast um, called Church and Main, formerly called En Route. Um, this is for episode 100, and um, I thought that episode 100 is probably a good time of any to introduce the new name. It's been thing. It's been a kind of a, ro- a slow rollout over the last few months. Um, I know that I, if you followed this podcast over the last year and a half you know it's changed a few times by name um and i can blame that as being someone on the spectrum that kind of just does things and doesn't always kind of you know do the whole testing and thinking about things um but i decided this time i would and um the problem with Enroute, as much as I love it, it is not an easy one to find because about 20 other people decided to name it and name their podcast Enroute. Um, that also makes it hard to classify of that people know that it is a religion broadcast uh, podcast and not uh, something else. So um, that's why I've been talking about the podcast that's at the intersection of church and Maine um, and doing some some research I found out church in Maine is something that no one else is using. And it kind of signifies where I'm at. I, with me, you're always going to get some kind of transportation related name um, just because I'm a transportation nut. Um, That's what you get from being from Michigan. But, um, but also I wanted something that, reflected what I'm interested in, which is really, of course, again, as we've been talking about the intersection of church and Maine is, is the intersection of religion and public life and where those two intersect. And that's been really the theme of this podcast almost since its beginning. So um, I hope that you can um, bear with me with the new name. Um, but um, that is the name going forward, and the name that I think it will be, it shall be, it will not change. Trust me. I hope. Um, I don't see it changing anytime soon. I think that this is the one I want. This is the one that fits. So this is, as you can tell, uh, a solo episode um, for episode 100. And because I was, I kept thinking of what I wanted to do for a 
um, for the 100th episode. And um, I decided I wanted to do some, uh, one that was solo. And then I didn't know if I wanted to do something that was reflecting on um, being the 100th episode. Um, I don't really need to do that. But I do want to focus on something that has been important to me um, and hopefully is important to you. I mean, one of the things about this podcast, uh, what makes it different from other religion podcasts is that I try to focus a lot on uh, mainline Protestantism, um, partially because that is the family that I belong to, not exclusively. I I also do do focus in on um, evangelicalism. but all of them are done, of course, um, focused not with a skeptical eye, but with a, a critical eye on on all different parts of of um, religion. And um, today, what I wanted to talk about is actually my own tradition, the tradition that I am ordained in as a as a pastor. Um, it is the tradition that I have been a part of for about twenty five years. Um, and that is the uh, Christian Church Disciples of Christ. For those of you who are unaware, um, it is a denomination um, that is part of what is called the Restoration Movement. This is a movement that was started um, around the time of the early 1800s. Um, and it was a, a unity movement. It was a movement uh, that arose out of especially a very sectarian, um, the nature of the Presbyterian church at the time, um, and wanting to move towards a, a, a faith that one was um, unified, that there was a simple um, requirement for um, becoming part of the, to, of the church, um, that there weren't creeds, there weren't a lot of different tests of faith, um, so we are a non-creedal tradition, not an anti-creedal, but non-creedal. We don't use creeds as tests of faith. However, um, creeds are important. And um, I'm someone that do, does like creeds, um, but obviously they are not necessary in, in the same way that they would be for Presbyterians or Lutherans or other traditions that use Um, the historic creeds of church. Um, The Disciples of Christ is kind of on the liberal end. Well, it is on the liberal end of the Restoration Movement. There are three main streams of the Restoration Movement. Um, The Disciples of Christ is one of them. Uh, The other one is the um, independent churches of of Christian churches, and then the Churches of Christ. Um, Church of Christ is probably the one that most people know about. Um, um, And Sometimes what you may know about them is that they are a cappella churches. Um, not all of them. Um, some of them have become uh, very different. Um, but that that kind of adheres to the second part of our tradition of restoration. Um, the leaders or the founders of, of the restoration movement were people who thought that the church should be like um, the church found in the book of Acts. And some have took, taken that quite literally to mean things such as music, that there were no musical instruments in the church. So in some churches of Christ, um, 
they are a cappella. They when they sing, they sing simply with their voice, no musical instrument whatsoever. Um, that is obviously not the case in all of the restoration movement. That's not the case in in my tradition of the disciples of Christ. Um, and even some churches of Christ are no longer a cappella, but that is part of, of, of that movement. So the disciples of Christ, as I said, are is kind of the liberal, the mainline um, variant of um, the restoration movement. Um, I didn't grow up disciples. I grew up Baptist, but have been a part of the um, of the tradition now for about twenty five years. Um, and I was ordained as a minister in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ in September of two thousand two. So I'm uh, heading up towards my twenty year uh, anniversary of my ordination. So what I wanted to talk to you about today, um, as you can see from the title, the title, as you can see, is called The Best Kept Secret. And one of the things that I've always found interesting whenever people talk about my uh, tradition or people talk about the tradition in general, they kind of talk about the fact that we are the best kept secret, that there is... There are some wonderful things about our uh, tradition, our denomination, that people don't know about, and that we are truly a, 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 a great secret to be found. And so the point I'm trying to bring on, on this um, thing is that it's probably not the best thing to say that we are a secret, because that means that then no one knows about us. And the other thing about secrets is that it doesn't it doesn't help us to see where we may need to actually be out in the open or um, that sometimes it's not a point of pride that can actually be a detriment to our tradition. And so when I'm talking to people today, and I hope that there are especially um, people from um, my tradition that will listen to this, it's going to be critical. And I've always, last few years, not been as open about my criticism of the, of my denomination. I think because sometimes criticism is seen as disloyalty. And um, I'm not disloyal to my tradition. In fact, I, I really do love the disciples. Um but I'm very concerned about where we are as a movement, um, where we will are headed, and um, basically our, or even our survival in, into the future. And so, what I'm sharing here are some thoughts. I didn't really write them down. I wrote some, scratched out some notes, but um, things that I I have been concerned about. Um, and I hope that people in my tradition will listen to, um, not as a way of putting the tradition down or putting the church or denomination down, but really as a, as a kind of love letter and a, and a note of concern to the tradition that I hold dear. So this, the impetus of this episode um, started really with um, 
hearing the news that a, a congregation, uh, not my congregation, but another congregation here and where I live in Minnesota would be soon closing. Um, and this is actually the second one this year that will be closing. And I think that as probably over the last 10 or 15 years, there have been a number of disciple congregation in Minnesota that have closed. Um, right now, there are just two uh, that will be, after this one closes, in the metro area of the Twin Cities. Um, and that should be concerning. Um, this is a large metro area. Um, I'm, we're part of a region that includes um, uh, Iowa and the Dakotas and Minnesota. Um, most of our congregations are in Iowa. Um, and I think that it's important to have a presence here in Minnesota. Um, we're of the four states, the largest, the most diverse. I guess personally, because I live here um, in light of, of what has happened in the last few years with Philando Castile and um, George Floyd, there really needs to be a presence um, that is talking about um, and engaged on issues on racial justice, but on other issues that I think are important for the denomination. Um, but we've just seen a lot of churches closing. And it would be easy for me to, and have in the past, be upset about regional le leadership, that they haven't cared and done enough. But maybe age has taught me um, more nuance. It doesn't hurt that I'm actually now on um, serving on the regional board, so I kind of see some things from the other side. But it doesn't change the situation that there is a problem here. And in, what's happening here is not just a Minnesota thing. It's actually, I think, denomination-wide. And probably if I were truthful, this is what's happening to disciples is just also happening throughout most of mainline Protestantism. Um, the disciples as a, as a movement, as a denomination, really has seen a decline, especially in numbers. We have lost a lot of people. Um, people who are more kind of simplistic will say, well, the reason that we've lost people is because of, um, and what, what did happen in 2013 is that um, we became much more, um, well, an open and affirming denomination, especially when it comes to LGBTQ people. Of course, being myself gay, I, I don't agree with that. Um, one can only look at the Southern Baptist Convention, which is not LGBT friendly. And they have lost people too, um, maybe for very different reasons, as we saw this past week. Um, let's say we're dealing with um, how abuse um, has been handled in the past. But the fact remains that the disciples are declining um, and declining fast. And there are there is some concern about that and concern what's going on. And what's kind of happening within our denomination, and how can we, um, how can we kind of serve, keep our tradition going? Now, I said earlier that the 
disciples have been called the best kept secret in America. And um, this is from a document I found from a church. And I think it actually came from um, a uh, disciples leader in the Indiana region, which I think is our one of our larger regions of the denomination. So these are kind of the, the distinctives, the things that um, keep us, that make us who we are. Um, one is the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, uh, believer's baptism by immersion, um, open membership, uh, tolerant, an attitude of tolerance and a rejection of creeds as test of faith, um, congregational, but yet voluntarily connectional, the inclusion of the leadership of women, an emphasis on lay leadership and educated clergy, and a priority on ecumenical life. I think that those do really kind of describe who we are, but how are we following all of those? I think we are obviously we do well when it comes to the weekly observance of the Lord's Supper, um, believer's baptism, um, the connectionalism. Mm, I don't know if we're doing as well on that. Obviously we're doing well on the inclusion of women. Um, and again, I, in light of what I see happening with the Southern Baptists, I'm thankful for that. Um, emphasis on lay leadership. I think that there is a lot of truth to that, but there are also some questions about that. And educated clergy, again, that's true, but there are also some, some drawbacks there too. And then the priority on medical life, that is our strong suit, but I think it's also our weakness. Um, let me go back and kind of explain some of those. Um, we are congregational. Um, the question is, how connectional are we? Um, how do we connect towards one another? How do we help each other? Um, I know that in my region, especially here in Minnesota, we haven't always been good at connecting with one another. Um, one of the things that they tried about a decade ago um, in our region is to really kind of get rid of a lot of the committee structure that we used to have and um, try to become more of a network. I think that that was a idea, good idea on paper. I don't know if it was always immediately thought out how that would look. And so when things were removed, I don't think that it immediately changed. Um, but I, I'm starting to see that happening. I'm starting to see churches coming together and um, trying to find ways of resourcing and maybe even, you know, I know that one region in um, one group of churches in Iowa are meeting, taking a, a day apart um, just to have a time away from um, the regular way of life and kind of coming together. And I think that that's something that is a good thing. Um, but it is something that we need to see more of. Um, and I'm probably going a little farther over here, but I think, I think that what's happening in our denomination right now there's a lot of things going on, but I think there seems to be a loss of mission. I don't think that we really know sometimes why are we here? What are our churches there for? 
Um, I don't always even hear, you know, the importance of the gospel. Um, we recently, I mean, we had our um, Pentecost offering, which is about planning of new churches. And the theme was kind of interesting, because, but it didn't seem to really talk about new churches, which was rather fascinating. Um, there's also, some, in some ways, a loss of theological discussion. Um, we don't seem to talk about issues and how do they relate to the gospel or how do they relate? What does it mean for faith in the way that I think that we, you know, maybe a decade ago would have done. Um, I remember when I first started, we were still kind of coming to terms of, of what it meant about um, being gay and what did that mean for the role of the church? Um, and there was just a lot of discussion. One of the things that I remember where there were people on both sides of the issue, they would come together, they would actually talk to one another, talk about the theological discussions. Um, the denomination actually put out resources that got people to talk about what it meant to be gay and um, all of that. And I thought that that was helpful. Um, so that when we got to our vote in 2013 that talked about um, kind of becoming an open and affirming denomination, we had had probably at that point 10, 15 years of discussion, if that, maybe even more. Let's and fast forward a few more years to 2019. There was an, um, a resolution put forward to talk about the inclusion of um, transgender individuals. That was basically voted in and there was no discussion. And please hear me out. I am someone that believes in the inclusion of, of um, our, our transgender sister and sisters and brothers um, and those who are non-binary um, but I also feel like we have to have a discussion about that. What does that mean? What does it mean to be transgender as a Christian? What is, and, and to talk about that doesn't mean that we Im immediately disagree with someone. But I think that you have to have a theological discussion. What does this mean? What does it mean in the life of the church? And there was no discussion about it. It was just kind of there um, that we should be inclusive and that's about it. And this would have been a good time to have some discussion to really focus on what does that mean, especially in our changing um, world to be a place that includes um, transgender siblings. And again, like I said, I'm not, talking in a way that says that would exclude people. But I think you have to have that discussion, and we didn't. And I think that that's been part and parcel of where we have been over the last 10 years or so, is that we don't seem to have really theological discussions on, you know, what does the cross mean? What does, what does atonement mean? What does all of this 
mean? It sometimes feels like we already know the answer to these. And so why bother even having the discussion? Um, which is not where I would hope that we would be. Um, you know, I think when I was in seminary, one of the things I was fascinated by was the panel of scholars. And this was, this was a group of theologians that wrote probably around the late 50s, early 60s, really to kind of reassess where was the denomination at at this time and um, what did these things mean? And I think even later on, um, going from the, the 80s and 90s, there was a word to the church that dealt with things like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And really, I think there was a movement to try to understand what did this, what did these things that we hold dear or the things that we just do all the time, what did it mean in this day and age? And that was a part of who we are, were as disciples. And it feels like that just stopped, that we're not as interested about finding out what does it mean to, what does the Lord's Supper mean today? Um, who takes the Lord's Supper? Does everyone take it? Does it matter if people are baptized or not? Um, we don't really tackle those questions. And I think that that's important, but you get the feeling that it isn't important anymore. Um, we have always been, I think, especially among disciples, a movement that's been important when it comes to justice issues. But it feels these days that we have continued kind of the emphasis on justice, but there is no, it feels like there's no um, theological grounding anymore. That it's, we, we kind of use the word and talk the word about God and, and all of that, but we don't really do more than that. We just kind of, talk about that and, and go from there. And that's about it. Um, it just feels much more thin than it used to be. Um, and then I, I kind of think about our churches and I think a lot of our churches are struggling. Um, as I said, that we've had churches here in Minnesota that have closed or are in the process of closing and I think part of what's happened is that they were churches that were used to a certain way of doing work of, of ministry. And we really haven't helped congregations really see of how they can still be church in various ways. Um, the church that I'm leading is probably going through that process now. Um, this was a church, um, it was, as some people say, among disciples, a county seat church um, in St. Paul. Um, had full-time pastors and all that. Um, but that's not the church that we are anymore. We are now in the suburbs. We are a very small congregation. Um, I'm not full-time. I am part-time. The way that we're doing ministry changed and, and will change. And I feel like we don't, as a denomination, have a way of 
helping and guiding churches through really this massive change that the way of doing ministry and the way that we expect churches to be viable doesn't work anymore. And I don't think that we have, as a denomination, really used our imagination to help churches see a way that they can still be vital in a community and still be uh, willing to um, participate, even if they are only seven people or um, even if that they can find ways to still be a witness to um, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I don't, I think that we don't have things like that. And, you know, I look at all this and it would be easy for me to say that there is just this one person that's a group that's at fault that, you know, it's the leadership, whether it's our our leadership in, um, um, Indianapolis or it's uh, in our regions or that it's clergy or that it's laity or that it's um, all of those liberals. Um, we don't have as many conservatives anymore, but, you know, but I don't think it is one group. I think it's, this is less about that than it is we are not ready for the times that we are in. And we are also not willing to sometimes be as inclusive or as diverse as we like to think we are. Um, You know, I don't think that we sometimes always understand the diversity of who disciples are. And I don't mean simply by color or by sexual orientation, but also even by our belief. Um, Some are far more conservative than others, but I worry at times that we're not willing to be um, as wide of a movement as we like to, or broad as a movement as we like to think we are. And I also think we don't really understand our um, historical heritage, our historical background. And I think that that's also been a problem. Um, it's been very thin to understand who we are as disciples, what makes us different from other um, Protestants and other Christians. Um, we don't really focus enough on that. You know, we also don't have a whole lot of structures around anymore that I think can keep people engaged, um, keep people thinking about what's going on um, in the wider church, um, and even ways of just reaching out towards each other. You know, disciples have long had had a a magazine of some type that grounded us, it kind of brought people together. It kept us engaged sometimes, especially theologically, but it also kept us informed of what was going on in different congregations um, and throughout the wider church. And we don't have that anymore. So we don't know as much of what's going on in other parts of, our, of the country 
other parts of the denomination um, that helps us, that may help us to inspire in our own local ministries. And we don't have that anymore. We also don't really have what I would call uh, as um, kind of unofficial organizations, organizations, networks that I think can help replenish and strengthen the denomination. Um, our um, restoration movement siblings have these organizations. They're not official organizations. And now, granted, they are, are even looser in their structure than we are. Um, but they have things that help to keep both clergy, um, clergy and laity engaged. Um, I'm interested in like in new wineskins. That is, I believe, from the, um, I want to say, see, the Churches of Christ. It might be the independent churches. But there, there are organizations out there that I think that people in congregations can use for resources um, to help them grow in the faith, to even for churches just to seek fellowship, uh, common ground with another other organization. Um, we just don't have things like that. You know, other denominations have that. Um, the one that I'm fascinated in is the one that's called Forward Movement. That's um, from the Episcopal Church. Um, and if you ever have the time to go to their website, um, please do so. Um, it's forwardmovement.org. And um, what I want to do is actually I want to read something I found on their website. It's kind of like how did their the forward movement come together. Um, and and this is um, this is an organization that's been around almost 90 years. But um, and I will put a link in our show notes. But it says, how a weary and divided Episcopal Church gets reinvigorated. And it says, a sense of weariness and resignation prevailed at the 51st General Convention of the Episcopal Church convened October 10th, 1934 in Atlantic City. Loyal church people were anxious and fearful. Distrust of church leaders was pervasive. Revenues for the previous three years had fallen far short of projections resulting in the curtailing of ministries and large-scale borrowing. Prospects for 1935 were bleak. Many saw a looming decline facing their church. Even with an increase in diocesan giving of 25%, by no means a certainty, and adding money from the United Thank Offering and investment income, revenues of only $2.3 million were expected against anticipated expenditures of $2.7 million, a nearly 17% shortfall. In its report to the convention, the committee called on this, called its job onerous and speculated the causes of the malaise. Many dioceses were recently in, invested in new buildings incurring large debts. Bad economic times taxed resources. And there was the question of trust faced with decreased giving and the need to pay the salaries of missionaries and maintain essential ministries the National Council, the predecessor of today's Executive Council, had borrowed heavily, contrary to the express will of the 1931 General Convention. That ang this angered many people. The church's national leadership was accused of having betrayed the church by poor management and incurring the debt. An atmosphere of hopelessness, per hopelessness prevailed. 
Bishop Henry Wise Hobson of Southern Ohio later recalled, in what was surely an understatement of, of and news to no one, the Committee on Program and Budget reported that in some matters, misunderstanding may have arisen. If all else failed, the Committee on Program and Budget recommended that the 1934 convention require the National Council to start borrowing money and begin operating on a pay-as-you-go basis, slashing expenses, including salaries, as ministries and ministries as necessary, and it suggested where cuts should be made. But the committee hoped it would not come to that and challenged the church to meet the difference between these two figures. How could this be done? The effort had actually begun a few months earlier in the spring of 1934 when a group of devoted churchmen, led by Harvey Firestone and Charles Taft, both wealthy laymen from Ohio, proposed a special offering to ease the debt under the slogan, Hold the Line. They acted without authority or authorization independent of the National Council and other official church bodies because the church officials were so widely distrusted. An intensive campaign of visiting and letter writing ensued. The layman did not ask whether the National Council had acted responsibly into going to debt, but focused on a positive effort to unite the church, halt the retreat, and reverse the decline. Although the campaign was carried on during the summer when many Episcopalians' consciousness of their church was at its lowest ebb, by the time every man's offering and the, as the effort was called, it was presented at the opening service of the Atlantic City Convention. Enough had been raised to erase most of the debt incurred during the previous three years. Bishop, But the every man's offering did more than pay off loans. Bishop Hobson later wrote that something had happened which changed the whole attitude and spirit of the convention. The delegates realized that in spite of the difficulties of the church, the church need not retreat, and that people throughout the church were ready to shake off their lethargy. A deputy from Tennessee is reputed to have said, this church needs more than a campaign to hold the line. We need to move forward. Responding to the new spirit, the Committee on Program and Budget called for the creation of a forward movement charged to reinvigorate the life of the church and to rehabilitate its general diocesan and parochial work. It said the discouragement of the previous three years must be transfigured into a confident attitude towards the future. The convention unanimously adopted the committee's resolution and appointed the Forward Movement Commission, chaired by handsome strapping in the words of Time magazine, young Bishop Hobson of Southern Ohio. The commission, consisting of five bishops, five priests, and ten laymen, was charged to plan and launch this new effort. Thus was born the forward movement. So that is a story about um, the forward movement in the Episcopal Church. And I think that reading kind of the background of where they were at that point isn't really unlike where we are as disciples right now. And I think we need an organization, something almost like this. The problem is, is that no one really is stepping up. Now, I'm around in a lot of different groups and, you know, we all kind of complain about where we think the denomination is right now. But we have a lot of people that know or can see what the problem is, but no one wants to step up and do something about it, which seems to be a spirit of our age where people who want to or are quick to talk about what's going wrong 
we're not so quick about how we can change things. We can turn things around, make things better. And I kind of wish that that would be the case, that we would try and to do some things. Because I think what we need in our in the disciples is that we really can't wait for someone from Indianapolis to come and save us. Not because I don't think that Indianapolis can do any, can't do anything, but I think it's because maybe that's not where the answer is going to come from. The answer is going to come from places near and far, from Minnesota or Mississippi or North Carolina, and not necessarily in the places of power. Um, but we need to have organizations and groups of people who are willing to kind of come together and maybe be willing to kind of create something, create and create these kind of maybe networks where churches can kind of get ideas of how can they do worship these days and what can, how can they work on this? Um, I just think that that's something that we need to really try to do. Um, as I said, we have those. There was some trying to do some of that in my region, and maybe it's it was too early for it to come out, but now maybe the time. I mean, we need to have networks of, of um, groups, uh, that can do things like maybe put together Bible studies or other spiritual resources that can help individuals and congregations. Um, ones that can also help renew congregations. I think that a lot of congregations like the ones that are, are either have closed here in Minnesota or process. were really trying to find out what in the heck they could do. And they just didn't have anyone to talk to. Um, and there is an example, or was at least was an example of of maybe churches or, or groups coming together um, to provide resources, and that was the Mission Gathering Network. For those who don't know, Mission Gathering was a church that started in San Diego. They have actually now planted several other churches throughout the um, the denomination. Um, and I think there was some attempt to kind of create a network. Um, my guess is that the COVID kind of stopped some of that, but I think that that's, in a, that's kind of how one it can work is maybe having people coming together. And theirs was a really great thing because it was kind of an example of how one can be um, quote unquote uh, progressive, but also evangelical in their focus. Um, and, you know, I hope that that's something, a movement that can kind of start up again in the near future. Um, I think, um, I think that the disciples right now were not in a good place, but I don't think it's a hopeless place. But I think that we have to stop pretending that we are the best kept secret that we have to move beyond that to becoming a church that people know about. Um, we have to pray for renewal and for revival. Um, 
this is a movement that I truly believe in, um, the denomination, but we have some problems. We don't, I feel sometimes our, our spiritual engagement is rather shallow. Um, I think how we really try to resource congregations, especially congregations that might only see one way of being church to open them up to new ideas. We're not as strong on that. And so I hope that, I don't know if this will do anything. It's just really the bleeding of one pastor. But I hope that we can take some time to really discover how we can be truly be church um, in our day and age. Because I think that we, as the disciples, have been a church for another time period. And we need to try to find ways of being church for now. Um, and the answer is not going to come from the denominational headquarters or from regional offices. It's going to come from churches, churches trying things and seeing how they work. And sometimes they'll work and sometimes they won't. But I think that's how it's going to work. It's not going to work any other way. As I said, I um, care a lot for this denomination. I want to see it be more than just the best kept secret. I want it to be a group of people moving forward, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, and to live up to its message of being truly a movement of wholeness in a fragmented world. So that is it for um, this solo episode for episode 100 of Church in Maine, which was formerly en route. Uh, this is Dennis Sanders, your host. Um, I will be back with uh, more interviews coming up um, in, a, in a very near future. So I hope that this was of help to you, um, even if you are not a disciple. And if you are a disciple, I definitely hope it is of help for you. And if let me know what you think about it. If you thought it was a great idea, if you thought, my God, what is he say talking about? Um, let me know. It will help for me to know. So uh, thanks, everyone. Take care. Godspeed. This is Dennis Sanders um, signing off. We will see you soon.